Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, since we were children, we were told to get a good night's sleep. Yet over 40% of us struggle with getting to sleep or even staying asleep. It might be a stressful day on your mind, too much coffee in the afternoon, a shift change, or even poor health that's messing with your ability to rest. You might have tried counting sheep or medications, had a sound machine or blackout blinds, or just decided to turn the TV instead of tossing and turning all night. Well, whatever the reason, many of us struggle with sleep, even though we all know deep down that it's essential for our health. World Sleep Day is March 18th, and it's organized by the World Sleep Society, an international association whose mission is to advance sleep health worldwide. They help educate our population on important questions like, how does the quality of sleep help maintain mental health? How might better sleep help people focus throughout the day? And how might fatigue weigh us down physically, mentally, and emotionally? So today we're talking about sleep, and fortunately we have two very special guests with us. First, we have a colleague of mine from Memorial University, Dr. Sheila Garland. She's a professor of psychology and an expert in the area of sleep research. She runs the Sleep Health and Wellness Lab at the university. After we speak with Dr. Garland, we'll chat with Dr. Julie Carrier, who's regarded as a leading researcher in the area of sleep at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine at the Université de Montréal. She's also one of the minds behind the Sleep On It campaign from the Canadian Sleep Society. Together, these two experts will help us understand the many reasons why sleep is a foundational pillar of human health and why to function at our best, we need to get enough rest. Let's check it out. Hi, Dr. Garland. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, today we're talking about what you study, and that is sleep. Can you tell me a bit about what you do at the university, what your role is, what your research is? Certainly. So I'm a registered uh, clinical psychologist. So my training has actually uh, affords me the opportunity to help people sleep better. Uh, so I have a private practice where I work with people who have sleep disorders. I also have an active research lab where we investigate the role of sleep in important other functions such as mood and cognition. And, and then I also teach. So I teach in the department of psychology. So I, I think I do a little bit of everything in, in as my, in my uh, position at the university. That's perfect. It's great to wear many hats, especially we're talking about a topic like sleep, because there's so many dimensions to it that we're going to go into today. You know, the big question, I guess, for a health and wellness show is, is sleep important to our health? So I think maybe I, I take the pretty fundamental position that sleep is one of those pillars for health that has largely been ignored. Um, people focus a lot on diet. They focus a lot on exercise. But I would argue that you're, you're not going to succeed in either one of those um, initiatives if you're not sleeping well. So if you're not sleeping well the night before, you're probably going to choose worse food or you know more unhealthy food options. And you're also not going to be as productive maybe in your high intensity workout if you haven't really slept well the night before maybe you're going to skip your workout in order to sleep in mm -hmm. so i think that sleep is one of those foundational health behaviors that people just don't pay enough attention to yeah and i think it was glorified for a long time that people didn't sleep you hear about people taking micro naps and da vinci never slept or whatever you know where did that sort of come from if it's actually not good for us 
Right. Um, it isn't good for you, but you're correct that there was this sort of like, it was like a badge that people could wear. I didn't get any sleep last night and look how well I am. Right. Um, so that like self-sacrifice. And I think that fortunately that's changing, right? I think you might see it still a little bit. And I think part of it came with research that when you are sleep deprived, it's not that your performance isn't impacted that, you know, a objectively, your performance is worse than had you um, slept a good quality night of sleep, but you're just less aware of your impairment. So they actually compared people who were intoxicated with alcohol to people who are sleep deprived. And the people who were intoxicated, they actually knew that they were intoxicated. They're like, whoa, man, I'm drunk. Right. Mm -hmm. But then the people who were sleep deprived, they didn't even realize how impaired they were. But the sleep deprived people's impairment was equal to the people who were intoxicated. So it's just the awareness of the impairment wasn't there. So I think this research like that really comes out and says like, wow, okay, maybe I shouldn't be wearing that badge of, you know, I didn't get uh, much sleep last night at all. Yeah, that's so true. And talk about like, we'd never operate a vehicle if we were intoxicated, at least we shouldn't. And I used to work on oil rigs where people would roll out of bed and be at work two minutes later, because they could get out of bed late, throw their clothes on and then be working with heavy machinery while they're still half asleep. And, and so obviously that makes a difference. Have you, you know, before we get into some of the sleep disorders, have you run into things like that as being an issue for people? Oh, certainly. Right. And some industries are doing it a lot better than others where they have any safety critical operations, whether they're saying like you have to have a certain amount of days off before so you can recover um, before you're able to come back to work. But, you know, that's the industries making those mandates. The people still have the choice of, you know, whether or not they're going to allow themselves sufficient sleep when they do have those opportunities. So I think still as a society, we need to take ownership for making sure that our own sleep health is optimal. That's right. I mean, and that's the thing. So somebody gets given an opportunity to sleep, but sometimes we can't sleep. So what are some of the common reasons why people struggle with sleep? Uh, so, so probably two of the most common sleep disorders. One is, I think, you know, maybe more common in the the popular media and that's insomnia. Mm-hmm. So I deal a lot with people with insomnia. And so that is basically the dissatisfaction with sleep quantity or quality characterized by difficulties, falling asleep, staying asleep or waking up too early and for it to be a disorder, because that's, that happens to everybody once in a while. Right. Mm -hmm. But for it to be a disorder, it needs to happen more often than not. So it needs to happen at least three nights per week for at least three months for it to be considered insomnia disorder versus just maybe, you know, the occasional night of difficulty sleeping. So that's, that's really, really common. Um, now about, 12 to 15% of the general population might have insomnia disorder, but people who have insomnia symptoms or the occasional night that, you know, depending, I think in COVID, you know, the rates were like, you know, 50%, 40 to 50% were having, you know, difficulty sleeping at least occasionally. Mm -hmm. The other one that's probably not as popularized is obstructive sleep apnea. And I think that this one is probably even um, more detrimental um, to your overall health, both physical and mental health. And it does not get the attention that it needs to, but especially in a province like Newfoundland and Labrador, where we have rates, um, really high rates of obesity and cardiovascular disease, obstructive sleep apnea is a huge um, unrecognized problem. That's right. And maybe you could describe some of the signs and symptoms of that, because from what I've heard, you can wake up many times a minute when you've got this condition. 
Yeah, so obstructive sleep apnea is a partial or full blockage of the soft tissue in the airway. And so, um, you know, this, as we're going into deeper stages of sleep, our muscles relax. So the diaphragm is forcing the airway back open as a way to prevent ourselves from actually stopping breathing during the middle of the night. So these apneas or these pauses in your breathing, you're absolutely right. They can happen multiple times, you know, 45 times an hour. And so, you know, you might have symptoms where you, um, you know, snoring does not always equal apnea, but people with apnea usually do snore, right? So it's not always like that, but you can wake up in the morning, you can have dry mouths, you can have headache. A lot of the time people might have like a larger neck circumference. Um, They might be carrying excess weight. They might also have high blood pressure because this is really, really hard on the heart. And excessive daytime sleepiness. These are the people who, you know, given five minutes at a stoplight, you know, they might actually be closing their eyes and nodding off. So it's the excessive daytime sleepiness where with insomnia, you don't necessarily see that same sort of like excessive daytime sleepiness. They're not the ones that are likely to fall asleep. They're the ones likely to report being tired or fatigued, but they're not the ones that are likely to fall asleep. It's the people who have obstructive sleep apnea that are likely to be falling asleep. Right. Okay. Because their brain wants to sleep as opposed to maybe mm-hmm. something with insomnia. Okay. You talked about like uh, insomnia not being a, a disorder in less than three months, but people do have periods of time when they struggle with sleep. How does levels of stress or the environment somebody's in, because COVID strikes me as a very stressful time for people. Yeah. So I think like insomnia can be adaptive, right? Um, in the short term. Insomnia does is it keeps us awake. It keeps us awake to solve problems. It keeps us awake to kind of deal with what we have going on. Um, So in the short term, insomnia can be adaptive. It's basically, if you think about it as like a fight or flight response, right? So when stress comes on, our fight or flight system kicks in. And so all those stress hormones, they're basically saying, all right, you, you have stress. Here you are. We're allowing your body to deal with it. In the short term, that might be adaptive, but in the long term, it's not adaptive. And we also know that making certain decisions when you're not sleeping or in the middle of the night is not very good because we don't make very good decisions. So oftentimes if we were able to sleep after a night of good sleep, we actually can see things a little bit more clearly and make better decisions after having slept. That's perfect. So note to all of our listeners, don't send text messages late at night or respond to angry emails. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. If you, it's, you know, it's saying like our body is physically able. It doesn't mean that we make the best decisions. Right. So yeah. I understand that. That makes makes sense. So you've got one condition that keeps us awake because we maybe we're going through stress. We need to solve problems. Another condition that keeps us awake because our, our body isn't allowing us to sleep. What impacts did these have on our overall health and wellness? Mm-hmm. So, so with something like obstructive sleep apnea, it is clear, right? So like the cardiovascular risk that's associated with obstructive sleep apnea is, is really, really significant. Mm. So that I think there's no argument. All medical professionals agree, like, you know, obstructive sleep apnea comes with some severe uh, physical uh, health risks, but also mental health risks. There's a lot of depression that is associated with um, obstructive sleep apnea because uh, one of the prime 
roles of sleep is emotional regulation. So if you're, if you're not able to get as good quality of sleep, you're not able to get all of the sleep stages and everything else like that. You're not able to do that emotional regulation as much. So there is also a psychiatric or psychological morbidity that's associated with um, obstructive sleep apnea with something like insomnia. The research is less clear as far as whether there are physical consequences associated with insomnia, because insomnia doesn't always mean insufficient sleep duration. So you can have insomnia and still be getting six and a half, seven hours of sleep. So it's not always that your total sleep time is reduced. It might be that you're having to spend 12 hours in bed in order to get uh-huh. that seven hours of, of sleep, right? Because mm-hmm. you sleep a little here, then you're awake for a bunch of time, then you sleep and then you're awake and then you sleep and then you're awake, right? So your total sleep time isn't always compromised mm-hmm. when you have insomnia. So that's why like with insomnia, it's not always that people are like really excessively sleepy. They, they, you know, their heads bobbing, they need to sleep, but they're fatigued because, you know, there's a lot of work to spend 12 hours in bed in order to get seven hours of sleep. We're here with Dr. Sheila Garland from the Sleep Health and Wellness Lab at Memorial University. She's sharing all about why we need sleep and what happens to our bodies when we rest. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Sheila Garland from the Sleep Health and Wellness Lab at Moral University. She's sharing about why we need sleep and what happens to our body when we get adequate rest. Let's get back to the interview. What effect does age have on our sleep patterns? I know, like, for example, a little baby will be up crying all night long. And then older people, do they sleep as much? Like, how does it change? Yeah, so there's a number of really important changes that our sleep undergoes as we age because the the point of um, our sleep changes, right? So we sleep in four different stages. Um, Non-REM sleep is non-rapid eye movement sleep, and that has three stages, one, two, three. And then REM sleep is the fourth stage, right? So four stages altogether. And um, uh, REM sleep is responsible for more of like the memory consolidation, the emotional regulation, whereas your deep sleep or your slow wave sleep, that's your stage three, that is more like physical. Um, So it's the hormones are regulated, growth hormone is put out, your appetite hormones are regulated. So it's more like kind of physiological. So kids spend a ton of time in deep sleep. Right. So that's when like their brain waves are really high amplitude, really spread out, like they're zonked. That's why you can like pick a kid up from a party where they've fallen asleep under a table, throw them over your shoulder, put them in the car seat, put them in bed, and they're gone. They don't even wake up at all. Like that's deep sleep. And that's also the reason why you can put put a kid to bed in one size of a clothes and then they wake up and they're in the next slide, next size, right? Like <laughs> they're doing a lot of growing. They're also doing like a lot of repair and restoration, which is why they can fall. They can bounce back up and, you know, they're hardly even faced. Mm-hmm. So like they spend a lot of that. They also spend a lot of time in the REM sleep, which is like the, the cognitive part, because that's when their brain is, you know, all of those connections are being made. They're learning things. So this amounts to, they need a lot more sleep, mm-hmm. right? Their body is doing a whole lot more. So as we age, the amount of sleep we need goes down. Um, and the time we spend in various sleep stages goes down. So probably the most depressing change that happens as we age is as we get older, we spend less time in that stage three, that slow wave sleep, that physical restorative 
face. So that's why it takes us longer. If there was any sort of like magic, you know, anti-aging pill or something like that, it would be a pill that could make us spend more time in this stage three sleep, because that's what's responsible for physical repair and restoration. Right. Um, so that, and then um, the amount of time we spend in REM sleep, you know, it doesn't really change too much. It's it's the time that we spend in the the slow wave sleep that changes as we get older. And then we also need less sleep. So, you know, um, but still an older adult is still needing six to seven hours of sleep. It doesn't change that much. Well, that actually brings me to a little game I wanted to play with you today, a little true or false when it comes to some different facts. Okay. So that's the first question I got is that, Everyone should absolutely get a minimum of eight hours of sleep per night. True or false? False. Do you want me to tell you why? Yes, I do. Okay. False. So it's a range, right? So anywhere from six to nine hours. Um, and it really depends. There seems to be like a, a genetic set point for each person. And that's kind of like what they need. And you might need a little bit more, especially if you're recovering from something like that, but you always sort of return to this set point. Mm, that's interesting. Okay. So what about this one? People love coffee. Coffee doesn't impact our sleep. True or false? False. It does impact your sleep. And there's uh, a reason for it. So caffeine binds to a neuromodulator called adenosine. Um, and the buildup of adenosine is something that our brain recognizes as a precursor to sleep. So the caffeine binds to the adenosine. Our brain doesn't recognize the buildup of adenosine, which means that we feel more alert for a period of time, but that binding only um, lasts for a short period and then comes off. And so, so that's why you don't want to have caffeine about six hours prior to when you want to fall asleep because you want to have that caffeine binding to adenosine you want that to be go to be gone so you can fall asleep well wow, that's that's interesting see i for anybody listening i was a bit of a coffee addict i love coffee i love all types of coffee you know fancy coffees but then the basic coffees i gave up caffeine about three weeks ago and only drinking water instead and my energy levels are actually significantly higher and my sleep quality is significantly better so even from and did you have did you have headaches for a period? No, not one, not one bit. It's very strange. I think I'm very lucky. I had zero caffeine withdrawal and I was drinking, you know, three coffees a day at least. So, you know, it was a good, good chunk. Yeah. Okay. So here's another one. Um, not everyone dreams. False. Now, so because um, it's something that your brain does naturally, you may not remember it. And there are certain caveats. So like if you're on certain medications that can impact, you know, so, so, but, you know, without those caveats, everybody dreams, you just may not remember it because you wake up um, farther, um, from a REM episode. So like sleep is amnestic, right? Like you can wake up and not remember having woken up because you sleep. And then, you know, there's that period of time where you don't encode that, um, uh, that behavior or, or that experience. So, um, but yeah, false, everybody dreams. You just probably don't remember them. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. People have a drink before bed sometimes to like a nightcap to help them get to sleep. So does alcohol help us sleep better? So alcohol helps with sleep onset. So it can help you fall asleep faster, but it's going to cause you more awakenings during the night. So it's going to help with sleep onset, but not help with sleep maintenance. So if you're going to do anything, have it to relax you with food at dinner time and skip the nightcap. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, good. And we had a whole episode on some of the risks of alcohol the other day. So everybody should be reducing it just a little bit. Okay. A couple more here. Napping helps to recover lost sleep. 
Yes. Um, and uh, especially if done strategically. So you want to have um, a nap that doesn't last more than 30 to 40 minutes because you don't want to get into that deep sleep that I was talking about, or you can end up feeling worse. You can end up feeling more groggy if you sleep too long and you don't want to have it too close to when you want to fall asleep again, or, or some of your sleep drive is going to be discharged and you're not going to be able to fall asleep. So you want to have it maybe like like four, you know, within three to four hours of waking up. Right. So, um, but not too close to when you want to fall asleep again. Perfect. Okay. Last one here. Uh, and that is about dreams. Again, dreams have no function. Dreams have, uh, there, you know, it, it may not be like the Freudian function, right? Like yeah. that, you know, have all of this meaning, but our dreams often do help us process things that we experience during the day. Mm. So if you think about REM sleep, and that's the period where we dream the most vividly, uh, oftentimes our experiences are like hodgepodge combinations of like things that, you know, we did 10 years ago and things that we're planning on doing, you know, the next week. And, and so like dreams have a process of regulating our emotions as well as like, you know, putting memories um, into the right spots. Mm. And it can't even be just a, an emotion. Like if you're stressed before going to bed, even if it's not specific about something, you know, you can find that you have stressful dreams, right? And so the part, the, the, the point of your dreams is sort of like to try and work through those emotions. So you wake up feeling a little bit more balanced. Hmm. Yeah. It's a little practice while you're asleep, offline practice. Good. Exactly. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of challenges around sleep. We've talked about what sleep does to us physiologically. What are some tips people can use to sleep better? Um, one of the best ones is consistency. Um, so I think people are always told go to bed at the same time every day. Uh, that's a little backwards. Um, it's not a little backwards. It's completely backwards. So, uh, the better suggestion is to wake up at the same time every day because your wake up time determines your bedtime based on something called sleep pressure. So, um, it's like when you wake up is going to determine your bedtime. Like if I'm an eight hour sleeper and if I take eight away from 24, I'm going to need 16 hours of sleep pressure to build before I'm likely to fall asleep again. So if I try to go to bed before I have enough sleep pressure, I'm going to lay there awake because I don't have enough sleep pressure to go to sleep. Like, so this is what happens a lot of the time when people experience Sunday night insomnia is they've slept in on Sunday because they've gone out Friday night, Saturday night. So they're trying to catch up. They've slept in on Sunday. So then they try and go to bed at their like preferred or desired time so they can get enough sleep for Monday morning and they find themselves wide awake. I can't sleep. Well, that's because you slept in, right? And you don't have enough sleep pressure to go to sleep at the time that you want. So in order to prevent Sunday night insomnia, people just got to take a hit on, you know, Sunday night or Sunday morning, like get up at the regular time. So you have enough sleep pressure and then you're going to fall asleep at the time you want. You're probably going to sleep deeper and even better. And you're going to feel even, you know, better on Monday morning when you wake up. Wow. You can get so much done anyway on a Sunday. If you wake up earlier, everybody thought the Sunday scaries wasn't avoidable, but apparently it is. It um, is. <laughs> that's excellent. Before we get off that, are there any other tips like around noise and darkness? Because I know some people need complete silence and pitch black and other people can have other things going on, like they need noise machines. Is there anything around that? Yeah. So there, there's some individual variability on, you know, how deep of a sleeper you are. 
you know, if you're a lighter sleeper, you might need to pay more attention to your sleep hygiene, right? That's your sleep environment. You might need light dampening curtains. You might need a bit of like a noise machine in the back to, 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 uh, drown out any other noise. You might need to pay more attention to the quality of your sheets and your mattress and your pillow and, you know, all that kind of comfy stuff. And then there's other people who could sleep on a bed of rocks. Yeah. Um, so, so I think like, you know, that that's nice. These are like the nice to haves, but, um, I think that they're not going to cure something like insomnia, right? Yeah. Like, you know, a, a new bed sheet is not going to make you, you know, sleep well every night if, yes. if you need. So, but I would say that one of the things that um, is helpful across the board is what I call a buffer zone. And that is the 60 to 90 minute time before your desired bedtime where you cut out all electronics. Mm. So, um, you know, having that transition period from like, you know, working and, you know, being like in engaged with something to transitioning to sleep. That is really, really important because you want to make sure that it's not only the light, but also just the engagement with the device. Mm -hmm. So trying doing something that's pleasant, relaxing, non-stimulating in dim light that doesn't involve backlit devices for at least an hour before bed. Okay, perfect. And make sure when you're in that environment, you don't drink a coffee. No, that's right. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, so March 18th is World Sleep Day. Uh, what goes on on World Sleep Day? Well, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a day that's organized by sleep champions, sleep organizations and advocates, just basically saying like, you know, this is around the time when the, the, the clocks change. And so it is a good time for people to start prioritizing, paying attention um, to their sleep. So it's primarily to raise awareness um, and to put it there in front of people to maybe start thinking about their sleep a little bit differently. And so we're closing up here, but any last thoughts you want to share to people that are out there listening and might struggle with their sleep? I would say that, um, you know, if it's more, if it's happening more than it's not, there are ways to get help. Right. Um, and so whether that be consult a sleep expert, consult your family doctor, um, but because it can do so much for your physical and mental health after getting your sleep back on track, I think it's worth the investment. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come here and share all your amazing information with us today. I'm sure I'll be knocking on your door again for another visit to the show. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. That was Dr. Sheila Garland, professor of psychology at Memorial University. When we come back, we'll chat with Dr. Julie Carrier, who's a sleep researcher at the Université de Montréal and one of the creators of the Sleep On It campaign from the Canadian Sleep Society. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Julie Carrier, who's a sleep researcher at the Université de Montréal and one of the creators of the Sleep On It campaign from the Canadian Sleep Society. She joined me to share all about the amazing resources they have for people to help improve their sleep and function at their best. Let's check it out. Hi, Dr. Carrier. Welcome to the show. Thank you. My today, pleasure. Well, today we're talking about something that you have studied very well, and that is sleep. And you have begun what's called a sleep on it campaign. But before we get into the specifics of that, I'd really like to ask that broad question, you know, what is sleep and why do we need it? It's a very interesting question. And actually, 
it's exactly the, the two questions that you ask me are exactly the two questions that I was asking myself uh, more than almost 30 years ago when I felt in love with the field. And I felt in love with the field quite rapidly in my career. Actually, my first research experience uh, as I was doing my bachelor was in the sleep lab. Mm. And it was totally uh, not predicted that I felt after that uh, so much in love that I decided to dedicate my life to sleep. But at that point in time, we didn't know much about sleep. We knew that when you don't sleep well, uh, you do not feel well. But if you were asking people why uh, we needed to sleep uh, or what is sleep, they knew what was sleep. So they knew that sleep is the time uh, during the nighttime for uh, the human where you are out of it. <laughs> And that your brain is is having those weird sleep stages. Uh, so the sleep stages were discovered in fifty more than fifty years ago. So we knew what was going on in the brain at that point in time, but we really didn't have the good idea of how important sleep was. Actually, thirty years ago, there were still studies that were trying to make people having less need for sleep. So it was a time that some people were saying, well, sleep is interesting. It can be a time where you are spending less energy, uh, but the big function of sleep were not known. So since actually my postdoctoral studies, I decided to get oriented on trying to understand uh, how sleep was changing across the lifetime. Because um, it, it was known at that point in time that sleep was changing. So, I mean, your sleep is changing since you are born. I mean, for every uh, time, every time you are celebrating your birthday, your, ch your sleep changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we knew uh, at that point in time that in older individuals, they had more problems uh, associated with sleep. So as you get older, uh, you have you will wake up more often during your sleep. You uh, have plenty of other changes. And I got interested to try to understand uh, why, mm -hmm. why sleep changed across the adult life why older people were more vulnerable to sleep uh, disturbances. And of course, can we do something uh, for it? So uh, in the past 23 years, my main focus has been on trying to understand age-related changes in sleep and their functional consequences and try to see if we could help uh, actually, uh, the sleep of older individual. At that point in time, it was really easy for me to get grants uh, regarding the sleep of older people because people knew that older people, as I said, had more sleep complaints, were struggling about their sleep and were having uh, daytime uh, problems regarding their cognition and regarding their vigilance level and alertness. But what is sad now, 
and that will bring out the sleep on it campaign uh, at some point. What is very sad now is that at that point in time, I was able to tell uh, the granting agencies, you know, the poor older people, they have sleep problems, their sleep is more vulnerable, so we need to do something because their daytime uh, vigilance and daytime life quality uh, was uh, disturbed by those sleep changes. Mm-hmm. But then now, do you know uh, what is the group of people that is more struggling with somnolence and with vigilance problem? The younger? You know? No, is the it the younger? younger it is. Younger people. And why? And this is the saddest thing in my life. It's even though when you are young, that doesn't mean that the young do not have sometimes some struggle with their sleep or some challenges with their sleep. But if you look at the sleep of a young individual, I would say less than 40 years old, (laughs) it's beautiful. I mean, the person has a lot of deep sleep. Uh, They will not wake up often. Their sleep is very resistant to any kind of interference. They can sleep over, they can sleep at different time. But the problem right now is that, you know, when I told you that 20 years ago, we didn't know that sleep was that important for health. But now it's like the people and especially the young people uh, believe that sleep is not a priority for their health. So they prefer to do, which is fine. I mean, we have been all young, but so they want to bring and bring more into their daytime life and they cut in their, during their sleep time. And for me, that's the saddest thing in the health <laughs> because we, we failed up to now, actually, we didn't win the battle. So now that we know more and more and more how sleep is crucial for mental, physical, cognitive and physical health, when you look at the sleep patterns of the younger generation, mm-hmm. they are taking less care of their sleep for plenty of different reasons. But uh, for me, it's very uh, difficult to, to swallow. That was Dr. Julie Carrier, who's a sleep researcher at the Université de Montreal and one of the creators of the Sleep On It campaign from the Canadian Sleep Society. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're learning all about the Sleep On a campaign with sleep expert, Dr. Julie Carrier. Let's get back to the interview. So let's talk about something that we've been mentioning all along, and it's a, one of the major projects you're working on. It's called the Sleep On a campaign. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah, so we started two years ago. Uh, it's a public health campaign on sleep. And I say a Canadian public health campaign on sleep. So the objective is really one to um, make the Canadians aware of the importance of of sleep and to provide very good information to the Canadian about their sleep. And the second is to, uh, you know that 25% of the Canadian population suffers from sleep uh, disorder. And the problem is that research in the past years 20 years, I found plenty of solutions for those sleep disorders. The problems right now is that is the deployment and the accessibility of those sleep solutions. So for us, it was important to tell not only the public, 
but also to um, build a relationship uh, with all the parties that can help us to deploy uh, solutions for uh, the Canadians regarding their sleep. Mm -hmm. So the Sleep on It campaign is first, we started as a website so people can go see us and we will be very happy where all Canadians can find scientific valid information about sleep disorders as well as the function of sleep. And we have a social media campaign. But this is the tip of the iceberg. The real objective is really to uh, build relationship with the government, with the school system, with the health system, in order to be deploying solutions for Canadians uh, that are having uh, difficulties where their sleep-wake cycle. And as I said, for instance, uh, Insomnia, we know since decades how to treat insomnia, what are the best ways of, of treating insomnia. The problem is that the Canadians do not have access to a psychologist, for instance, or even if they try to find solutions where their medical doctor, uh, they, they do not have necessarily all in their hands the, the, the pharmacology uh, that could help them out. Mm -hmm. So it's a way uh, actually of trying to put the research as you are doing, putting the research results into society, not only for people to know, but also for the government, for the public health to really try to uh, deploy the solutions for the Canadians. For instance, I mean, since 25% of the population is suffering from a sleep disorder, you may imagine that there is a huge market out there. I mean, the private system understood that the people are really trying to find solutions for their sleep disorders. And if you look at the sleep industry right now, you find everything. You find devices to measure your sleep quality, you find some very cool system that will give you some sounds or give you some ways in order to fall asleep more rapidly. Yeah. And they are making a lot of money with those things. And mm -hmm. sadly, many of those tools are not validated and are not scientifically driven. driven. So for us, uh, for me <laughs> and for us, it was to, to say, well, we do have scientific valid evidence-based solution that we just want uh, to be able to deploy within society. But we need for that to bridge with the different parties that will be able to, to bring the solutions to the Canadians. So this is the start of the Sleep On It campaign. Uh, so the website, please go. It's, it's very interesting and we will continue to add stuff uh, to, to the website. We are bridging actually with, with the private sector, for instance, and with the government also to, to try to deploy sleep uh, across society. And so, so the mission of the program is really to get all the information that researchers and scientists like yourself that have developed over years into the hands of the population. Is this also go hand in hand for physicians that will be treating patients with sleep disorders? 
Absolutely. And we are doing that uh, also. I mean, the, the problem with sleep is at many different levels. I compare often myself jealously to the physical activity field. Mm -hmm. I mean, the physical activity field is maybe, I would say, 15 years, maybe 20 years ahead of us. I mean, the, the, the evidence-based science regarding sleep arrived a little bit later than the evidence-based science regarding physical activity. But for physical activity, I think people have a better knowledge and, and know better, not that it's working entirely, as you mentioned, like for instance, the obesity increasing, but people know, uh, already know and are convinced that nobody will brag, brag, brag about the fact that they are not physically active. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's not viewed positively. And as you mentioned, people still say, well, I didn't sleep. Uh, I slept only four hours because I had a big deadlines. And people will look at this like something that is very positive. So there is yeah. a change of mind that we, we need to change with mm -hmm. evidence-based. But contrary to physical activity also, sleep has like the behavior that you need to, to put your in phases and having a, a good time of sleep. But there is also plenty of disorders that needs to be treated. And that's mm -hmm. one difficulty that we are having now. And, and we will need to be very creative with the solutions. For instance, I, I discuss about insomnia and, and the use of cognitive behavior therapy, for instance, that is the probably the best way to treat, uh, to treat uh, insomnia, mm -hmm. though not many people has access to a free psychologist. Yeah. So then this is why some, some relationship with the private sector can be very positive because mm -hmm. we can think also of different ways of delivering this uh, psychotherapy, behavior therapy. Yeah. But for this, the sleep community need to bridge with society in order to deploy their solution to yeah. society. I can see that. We had a uh, online CBT provider uh, when I was with the medical company that acquired our, our, our wellness business a number of years ago, and it was extremely important. And somebody who's suffering from a sleep disorder would pretty much do anything or try any gimmick to try and get a restful night's sleep. Well, we're starting to wind down here, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you some parting advice. If somebody is listening and they struggle with sleep or they have a diagnosed sleep disorder of some sort, uh, what advice would you give them? Well, the first thing is try to find solutions. And, and, but I do admit that the solutions are not always easy to find. But the first thing is to discuss with your health practitioner. It could be a doctor, a nurse, it can be your pharmacist, but try to discuss that. You can go see our website of the Sleep On It uh, campaign to have valid information. Uh, it's important to try to find valid information about your sleep disorder. And if, you, and if you don't <laughs> prioritize your sleep, so if you are in young and don't believe that sleep is important, also, I will tell you also to try to go see our website uh, also. Yeah, exactly. I think that people that stay up all night long playing video games and drinking energy drinks might be putting themselves back for long-term health. Well, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Dr. Kelly, I thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you're very busy, but I really appreciate you sharing all your expertise with us today and all about the Sleep On It campaign. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Garland and Dr. Carrier for joining me today. If you want to learn more about how you can sleep better, you can visit the Sleep On It campaign at www.sleeponitcanada.ca. Sleep is an integral part of our health and to function at our best, we need to make sure that we're getting adequate rest. I hope that our chat today will help or at least set you on the right path to better sleep. Well, thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.